filling in again for us. Grateful for your willingness and your ability. Man, thanks. Um, I must confess, I'm about to sing a little verse of a song, but every time I do that in a church service, I think about an occasion I had. I, there's a, one of our sister churches in town was without a pastor for a couple of years, and I had the, it was a great joy to fill in for them on the occasion. I, I did so for two full months of December in a row in both of their Easter services. But the, the first time that I had planned to preach there, I was something in my sermon was going to be kind of reiterated by singing the verse of a song, a hymn. And I knew I was going to be doing that, but I was introducing myself to different folks. And one of the instrumentalists, an older gentleman, came up, came up to me and we're talking and heard my last name, which always brings up the question, are you related to the Gaithers? And the answer is yes, but not those Gaithers. And I knew what he meant, but that brought up another conversation to which he said, you know, I feel strongly that preachers should preach and music guys should do the singing. I said, well, that's a great, well, thank you. I, I, he knew nothing about what I was about to do. And I said, I'll try to keep that in mind, knowing that in just a few minutes, I'm going to bust out in song in this um, service. And I just uh, went ahead as planned and afterwards went up to him and said, I didn't know how to break it to you, but I was going to do that. So, so uh, forgive me for what's about to happen. But before we proceed, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am just so grateful uh, for the opportunity to be in this room. And just as Pastor Bill encouraged us, man, we should look forward to being with our church family, and I indeed do. Thank you for that good grace. Thank you for my brothers and sisters in this room. And, um, I count it a, a gift, a good gift from you to be part of this family. Lord, as we come to that time in our service where we open up your word, I do pray for your help. Please help me make clear this beautiful truth from Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. And um, help me to get out of the way in the midst of communicating it uh, so that they can hear and we can hear, I can hear directly from your word and spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Wilbur Chapman uh, attended an evangelistic crusade of D.L. Moody back in the mid-19th century. And while attending that, he sensed God calling him to give his own life in service, similar service to that which D.L. Moody was doing in proclaiming the gospel and preaching uh, the glorious truths of the gospel in whatever opportunity and arena the Lord provided. Uh, but what became a large evangelistic crusade ministry um, across much of our country, and he pursued that calling um, with great surrender. And the Lord blessed his work of preaching, but he also wrote songs, um, hymns that uh, would be sung in his uh, crusade services. And I've not drawn the connection to one of those songs to a song that I heard my father sing much of my life, um, an older hymn that he, Chapman wrote the hymn called One Day to clearly contain and communicate the gospel that he was preaching. Some of you folks uh, my age or a day or two older may remember this, but it may be a little newer to some of you. It's, this is the hymn, One Day. 
And he, he writes in this song, One day when heaven was filled with his praises, One day when sin was as black as could be, Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin, Dwelt among men, my example was he. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, O glorious day. He would use the words of hymns like that to reiterate and communicate the gospel, much like we seek to do here at Redeemer. But in addition to songs and stories like that, he he would oftentimes invite people to share their gospel testimony and the testimony of their life. And on one occasion, multiple occasions, he asked this same gentleman to share his story. The gentleman that he would hear from that would share his story had grown up in a very, very wealthy family, but had somehow become estranged from his family. Um, and instead of living under the uh, comforts of the wealthy family that he was, like that of the prodigal, he took on the life of a destitute and broken-spirited man and took up the life of begging. And he would ride the trains and walk the streets of big cities and beg for change and money and food. He shared this story personally at one of Chapman's testimony, and here are his words. He said, I got off at the Pennsylvania Depot as a tramp, and for a year I begged on the streets for a living. And one day I touched a man on the shoulder and said, Hey, mister, can you give me a dime? Remember the time period. As soon as I saw his face, I was shocked to see that it was my own father. I said, Father, Father, do you know me? And throwing his arms around me with tears in his eyes, he said, Oh, my son, at last I found you. I found you. You want a dime? Everything I have is yours. Think of it, he said. I was a tramp. I stood begging my own father for 10 cents for when for 18 years he had been looking for me to give me all that he had. And I hope this man's story provides a clear connection to the gospel for you this morning. And if it doesn't now, Lord willing, it will as we conclude our walk through Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. I invite you to turn there with me, Ephesians 3. We jump back into the prayer that we began last week at verse 14. Paul spent two and a half years, I'm sorry, two and a half chapters of Ephesians writing about the incalculable riches of grace and glory that belong to God. He opened up his letter with a beautiful benediction that God alone is worthy of, and many of us are committing this to memory. He writes in this benediction, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now Paul moves on from that benediction 
highlighting the mystery of the gospel. And he'll use that language over and over again in the first three chapters. And that mystery of the gospel is this, that it is that way unto salvation and redemption through faith alone in Christ alone. And having shared what is true of all people that, is, that are genuinely converted, genuinely saved, and born again in Christ, Paul shares some of those things that are true of every believer, that they've been adopted as sons, they've been forgiven of their sins, they have their life folded in union with Christ, they have a security that comes from the Holy Spirit, they're given a blueprint for holy living. They're offered inclusion into the new creation, the church. They have belonging. And by God's grace, through the mystery of the gospel, they have bold access to the Father by the Spirit through faith. And now we come to chapter 3. Paul is praying for them, and he's praying as we began last week, that they would grow up, that they would grow up into all these glorious gospel things that are, that are yours, that are mine, that were theirs through the gospel, and that they would not settle Here's the connection to that story that they would not settle for groping around in the darkness for whatever spiritual dime that the world might have to offer them. No temporary trappings of the world. No temporary trappings of the world can compare to the riches that are yours in Jesus. So Paul interrupts himself. He interrupts his own teaching. He interrupts his own outplay of doctrine to pray for the Ephesians that they would keep growing up into Christ so that God's fullness might be enjoyed in them. Notice, enjoyed in them and lived out through them. So let's jump into this prayer. Starting at verse 16. First point for your notes here that you began writing last week. Paul prayed that the Ephesians would grow in Christ. And I've added the words in parentheses that they would grow in Christ and run from sin. That they would grow from Christ and run from sin. So like I said, we, we started our walk through Paul's prayer last week and we covered the first thing that Paul prayed for the Ephesian church, which is this. In the first part of 16, he prayed that believers would be strengthened with power. Notice verse 16 where it says, That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Pastor Kent Hughes writes this, and I... I just think it's so true that God's children need to be inwardly strengthened to receive all of the blessings that God desires for him. Why? He goes on to write, because paper bags are not fit containers for valuables. After I returned from Desert Storm back in 91, Shannon and I took advantage of an opportunity that a major hotel brand was issuing and offering to all returning veterans. Um, they were offering that veterans could come and spend a free night of their, on them 
at a hotel in their brand of their choice, right? So we're 21-year-old college students. We, we don't have two pennies to our name. And, and we drive down to Atlanta, pulled right up to a, the high-rise hotel that we had made our reservations in like we owned the place. The only problem was we, the luggage that we used to take our stuff from the car into the hotel was an old beat-up gym bag and a plastic grocery bag that we had just stuffed into that thing and said, here we go. <laughs> we still think about that and laugh. Every time we pull up to a hotel, that crosses my mind. Our bags hadn't gotten much better, but at least look back at with fondness to carrying our junk in probably a Walmart bag if they existed then. But I can't help but notice the similarity. Our frames are not grocery bags. Our frames, our bodies. But Paul does refer to them as jars of clay in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In and of ourselves, we are desperate for God's strength because in and of ourselves, or themselves, I should say, paper bags are not fit containers for valuables, but thanks be to God. Hear this as a, as a praise. Thanks be to God. We are all frail containers that are pulsating with divine Holy Spirit power like we discussed last week. What is that power for? I woke up with a shot last week before... Sunday morning, on Sunday morning, but as I was kind of waking up to prepare to finish up preparation for the sermon, and a list of things hit my mind as clear as a bell, so much so that I sat up in bed and thought them through, went to the table and wrote them down. It was this list. The Holy Spirit strengthens us to die. And by that I mean die to sin. We talked about that last week. The Holy Spirit strengthens us to live. And by that I mean live worthy of the calling to which we've been called and in such a way that Christ would be at home in our hearts. The Holy Spirit empowers us to die. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live. And the Holy Spirit strengthens us to learn. Also from this prayer. To learn the impact and the reach of the love of Christ which is resident within us. And finally, from the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit strengthens us to lead. I mean, that list just hit me like a ton of bricks. And by lead, I mean this. Jesus' own words in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit's power in us, these paper bags, these, these bodies of earth and clay. We carry treasures in this, and it is not us ourselves, but it is the gospel. It is Christ in us, the hope of glory in these earthen vessels. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to live this life to his, for the glory of Jesus and his Son. So we prayed that believers would be strengthened with power. First part of verse 16. Second thing is we'll kind of jump into what is next here. He prayed that Christ would be at home in their hearts. He prayed that Christ would be at home in their hearts. So I'm, I'm going to ask you to look down at your text here to the second part of verse 16. 
I've written 16 in my notes, but it's 17. I'm glad we said that. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now with this part of his prayer, Paul is taking us all the way back to what I think he's referring back to in chapter 2 of of the temple of God into which all believers are being built. If you were here on our anniversary, our birthday celebration of a church, you, you probably heard our children standing up here and just beautifully singing brick after brick. That song which is a reminder to us of what God is doing as he's taking each of us and he's forming us into a temple of his dwelling as members of his body. So look, think back, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. The song was written about and after and for this. In him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a, notice this word, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Notice the working of God. Not only in chapter 2, verse 22, but also in verse 17 of chapter 3, where we're studying. He is building us. So likewise, in this verse, this verse 17 that we're considering this morning, it's the strengthening with power through the Spirit that explains the force behind what Paul is praying for the Ephesian church. What, what you are praying for your loved ones. By God's grace, what you're praying would be the result going on in your own life. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now the English word dwell can mean, it can mean different things in the scriptures. But in the original language, our English word dwell would have come in the form of different Greek words throughout the text, right? And we won't have to get into that, but the reason I'm telling you that is the, the readers of their original language, they wouldn't have wondered, huh, I wonder what he means by dwell. Does he mean this or does he mean this? Actually, the, the words that would have used would have denoted exactly what he was talking about. What we read as dwell would have been in the form of a specific word in the Greek that would have communicated what he was talking about. In other words, in, in the Greek, there would have been multiple words for the word dwell, whereas we use the same word dwell and let the situation or the context define what it is we're talking about. We do this in English, right? Have you ever been in a conversation um, with folks and asked the question, you get around to those initial conversations, hey, where do you live? It's increasingly, increasingly becoming part of my experience that people's response to that question, depending on whether they're living in a place that's a permanent home or a temporary home, if it's a permanent home, they may say something like, oh, we live in the Meadows, or we live in Boynton, or we live in whatever the case may be. But if it's a temporary situation, they don't use the word live all the time. They may say something like, well, we're staying in a home in Lookout Valley, or we stay on the south side, or we blah, blah, blah. Point being, the, the words denote, as well as connote, either temporary visiting or permanently living. 
that is important for us to differentiate and distinguish in Paul's prayer to God for the Ephesians. Because here, Paul is praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The word denoting permanence here is very important for us to see. In other words, you may welcome a guest to come dwell in your house for a few days, but through redemption, Christ has come to dwell permanently in your heart, and he's not doing it as a long-term guest, but he's coming in to dwell in your heart as the, this is important, as the master of the house. He's coming in to dwell as the master of the house. And this changes everything. Paul knows it. And he's praying that, that they would grow in this, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is why it's, it's helpful to visualize a throne being situated in your heart. Now, this visualization of a throne being in your heart, uh, which Christ upon which Christ is to be seated from where he's calling all the shots. He's, he's leading us into holiness. He's, he's helping us run away from sin. And, 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 and he's helping us make decisions in our lives for the sake of his glory and for the sake of others. Paul's praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This begs the question for all of us. At every minute of every hour and every hour of every day and every day of every week to be asking the question, is the fruit of my life giving evidence that Jesus is on the throne calling the shots? Or in this moment, is the old man that used to reign supreme inside of me, the flesh, is he fighting and taking seats? taking a seat on the throne of my heart. I say that not to say that Jesus leaves your heart. When he came in to dwell permanently in you, he is there to stay. We'll talk about that permanence in just a moment. However, there is always and constantly and will always constantly be a wrestling match for control and for, for um, allegiance in our heart because the flesh doesn't our flesh does not like the fact that there's a new president on the throne this is what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 7 however Christ as permanent resident of as master of the house there's no other seat for him but that throne and as we surrender control of our every being every aspect of our life. He is worthy to lead us to make decisions that glorify Him and to live in a manner that is worthy of the calling of the gospel. So to that end, as you're asking yourself those questions, hey, is my behavior, is my thought life, is that which I'm looking at, are those giving evidence that Christ is on the throne in, in this moment? Or has my, my flesh kind of decided to rear its ugly head? And when it does, Christ has not left you. But it is an opportunity for you to bow your knee in confession of sin. And thank the Lord for 
his faithfulness because he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin when we confess sin before him. Surrender every part of your life to the master. Confess and run from sin and yield the reins of control afresh and anew, moment by moment, grace by grace, to the one who is fashioning you into his image. Lordship. Lordship is not the only thing at stake here, but also intimacy. In other words, when Jesus is, or I'm sorry, when Paul is praying um, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, he's praying that it'll be the posture of our heart that we say in our prayer and our lives to the Lord, Jesus, make yourself at home. Because I am your home. It's really not all that's going on in this when Paul is praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. There's at least one more thing, and I, I, I hesitate to say at least one more thing as if it has any less importance here. Um, but... Christ has taken up permanent residence in the heart of every believer of those who have been truly converted. And as a result of his permanent residence in us, he will hold you fast. You can trust him for that. In spite of your moments of falling short of God's glory and your and my tendency to sin, we're, we're, not, we're not our relationship of Christ and his residence in us is not contingent upon our perfectly walking sinless here on the earth. Notice what Jesus says um, about his willingness and ability to hold us fast in John chapter 10, verse 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch, out, snatch them out of the Father's hands. I and the Father are one. He's praying that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Final thing of this prayer that I want to point out to you this morning is this. It comes from the middle part of 16, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 19 where Paul is praying that they would know God's love for them. Thus, all of the songs that we've been singing about the uh, great love that God has for us, His children. Here's the word. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. As most of y'all know, Shannon and I are having a house built right down the road from Boynton Elementary School. And in May, the, the bulldozers showed up on the property. And we were so excited, thinking that, man, they're going to dig a little dirt, push this thing around here. And in just a matter of a few short days, we're going to see a structure going up on our property. <laughs> However, what we watched was the deep digging and the careful establishing of a foundation hidden from everyone in the future that the entire structure would eventually be built up upon. But in this prayer, Paul mixes metaphors. He mentions the, 
the rootedness of trees, and the foundation of buildings. And, and I, again, think we're supposed to be going back to the temple here, to the foundation of the gospel in Christ upon which the temple is being built up. You and I are built up on and in Jesus. And I think we're supposed to be seeing that. But although he's mixing these metaphors, building and deep-rooted um, tap roots of trees, he's speaking of the same thing. He's speaking of a foundation and deep tap roots of love for one another within the body. Remember the context here. The angels are celebrating. The angels are glorifying God at what they're looking at in the church. You mean these two people have become one person? And they are in countercultural form loving each other, these two people that used to hate each other? Well, Paul is praying that they being rooted and grounded in love, love for each other that they're fleshing out with each other. That love springs forth from the love of Jesus. And the love of Christ is so vast and so far-reaching that it's beyond anything that we will ever be able to fully comprehend. Eternity itself will not be long enough for us to fully comprehend the love of God availed to us in and through Jesus. So Paul is praying this. Paul's praying that we, being rooted and grounded in love, that we might live a lifestyle of love horizontally, right? So I say horizontally with each other, right? Across the pew and across the the aisle of this church and, and that this family of redeemed sinners that have covenanted together to live life together would live as expressions of love that he vertically has lavished upon us. And Paul talks about this in dimensions. Notice the language of the text here. He says, May have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's love in Christ. Now really no special interpretations are given us to these words, and I, and I believe they're meant to generally express to us the vastness of God's love and the reach of His love. So Paul is praying for the Ephesian church, just like Bill has prayed for us and you're praying for each other. Paul is praying for the Ephesian church that they would grow not only in their mental knowledge of this love, but that they would be strengthened again by the Spirit to experientially understand, to know by experience, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge in their lives. And and they're going to be experiencing it, well, they're going to be understanding it experientially, knowing it by experience, as it's fleshed out to each other. That's why when we read this verse, we cannot miss these key words. Look at verse 18 again. That you may have strength to comprehend. What are the next four words? With all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? Every other Sunday night, I have the opportunity to spend some time with my D group. And we do so sitting in a circle, in some form or fashion, sometimes around the fire and sometimes inside a building. But 
as a member of that circle, I get to watch and receive and participate as we bear one another's burdens, as we engage in each other's lives, as we point each other not only to Christ, but to His Word. And as we pray together, we are, we are practicing that which is being spoken of in verse 18. And that which is on display for the angels um, to, to glorify God over. I think I've shared this with you. I don't know if it was in my Sunday school or on a Wednesday night. Um, but it took me a year. I, I, am, I am now officially old. But it has taken me a year of driving back from Ringgold to Lookout Valley to see the billboard on the side, the sign just off the exit. I think it's Ringgold Telephone Company or something. And it's got the letters up there. I-Y-K-Y-K. If you know, you know. I had no idea what those letters were to, to be representing. And finally, just out of nowhere, I realized, ha, ha, ha. I get it. You know, when you're that late to a party, it's no longer funny, but I, I finally got it, right? If you know, you know. Pastor Hughes writes this word in relation to that. For those who have not experienced this love, no words will suffice. For those who have experienced it, no words will quite do. When you've experienced the love of Christ, being born out to each other among the body. No words will do in your desire to explain it. So let's all pray, right? Let's be praying that God would strengthen us to experientially comprehend, to understand the love of Christ, that God may continue to root us and to ground us in a lifestyle of love with each other. And finally, look at verse 19. Notice, if you will, the result that Paul hoped for in his prayer. Hear the language. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's hope for us, Paul's hope for the Ephesian church was what God has planned for us. And here it is. That we would be filled to the measure of His fullness. Paul's entire prayer for the Ephesian church seems to have this as his pinnacle hope. I mean, it's, it's clearly been building up to this, right? He's praying that as they are strengthened with power through their spirit in their inner man, and as Christ is at home in their hearts, and as they're strengthened to understand and experientially know the love of Christ, the boundless love of Christ, that their lives and their interactions with each other would be marked by the fullness of God in Christ, being developed in them and displayed through them. The fullness of God is only complete in Christ. This is what we learned when we studied the book of Colossians. Let me read from chapter 2, starting at about verse 8 and 9. Listen to the words of Paul there. He writes of Jesus. For in Him 
the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. MacArthur adds to this when he writes this. He said it's, it's, it's not to have much of God and a little bit of self, but it's to have all of God and none of self. And indeed, we're, we're works in progress with this, right? And like we've been studying together in a, in, on Wednesday nights from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We're to reject conformity with the world and be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Now this work of growth in us that we're praying for, we participate in this work, but ultimately, He's the one doing the filling work in us. This side of heaven, so while we're still in these earth suits, this side of heaven, there will always be room for us to grow in these areas of our lives. But, in the same way that God and His riches of glory cannot be exhausted, neither will the boundaries of His fullness ever be reached. The boundaries will not be reached because no such boundary exists. It's limitless. And it reaches out into infinitude. That's the greatness of our God. And that's the greatness of His fullness. The fullness of all of His characteristics, all of His attributes wrapped up into one, making Himself available to us through His Son, Jesus, in whom all the fullness of deity in indwells bodily. So that's what Paul's praying. He's praying earnestly for them. He's, he's explained the gospel and then he, he pauses in his explanation of the gospel to pray this, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And he's praying that they would grow in Christ. He's praying that they would keep growing in Christ. He's praying that they would surrender to the leadership of the Spirit in them and that one of the evidential fruits of that would be the fullness of God being lived out through the people of God to be enjoyed in the church of God. And all of this prayer leads to a high praise doxology which he articulates in verses 20 and 21. And it's with this doxology of praise that I close my time with you this morning. Notice this doxology of praise. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Can I push pause here and remind you, Paul has just prayed a monumental prayer. The people who, they don't have it all together. They're learning what it means to live this Christian life. They're learning what it means to demonstrate Jesus' love through them. They're learning what it means to run from sin. They're falling on their faces. They're, they're hitting hurdles and they're messing up. But Paul is praying that God who is able will continue to do beyond what he's asking or thinking. 
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. And he's talked about that power in this prayer. To him be the glory. Where? In the church. And in Christ Jesus. Throughout all generations. Forever and ever. Amen. Hope you'll join me in praying this reality on Redeemer. I hope you'll commit this prayer to practice as you're praying for your lost family members, begging God to do a work and reminding yourself of this praise-filled doxology that He is able to do more abundantly than all that you ask or think. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, how grateful we are for the gospel. Lord, we have sung hymns of your love this morning. We've even sung words of a hymn that said that if all of the waters of the ocean were ink and every man was a scribe by trade, that all of them who sought to write of your love for us, there would not be enough paper to fill or to, to contain the words of your love for us. And you have demonstrated that fully through the gospel. You have demonstrated that fully by adopting us and forgiving us and, help, and allowing us, enabling us to be co-heirs with your son Jesus. Help this to blow our socks off, Lord, and to live our lives in a manner worthy of this gospel. But Lord, even our best intentions fall short. We need your Holy Spirit to empower us in this growth need in our life. Lord, it's the cry of our heart that you would be at home in our hearts and, and seated squarely on the throne of our hearts without any competition from our flesh, whom you have rendered dead. Somehow we find ourselves giving in and sinning. So Lord, we ask to be filled with the fullness of the glory of God. We ask that your spirit, Lord, would empower us to walk that your spirit would empower us to know the love of Christ, which is ours. And that by experientially knowing that love, it would radically change our heart and our desires. And it would flesh itself out in us unapologetically and without ulterior motives, loving each other. Lord, thank you for doing this work in us. Thank you for the reminder of your gospel through this prayer. And Lord, we covenant to pray it for each other, to pray it for our neighbors who do not yet have life in you, many of our family members who the same is said of. But Lord, we also ask you to do this work afresh in each of us for the sake of your great name. 
Amen.